Uh, great to be with you. How are you feeling? Ready to be stirred, said one man on the front who remembered what had been said earlier on. Okay, I don't feel that tired actually, but you know what? As soon as I finish this talk and I hit the road and I head back to central England, I'll just fall asleep because I've been so busy. It's been a great busyness because you guys have been talking to me non-stop over the weekend and I've thoroughly enjoyed that and I've thoroughly enjoyed being with you. I'm sure you know the name William Wilberforce. Remember that guy? In the 1780s, he lived in Hull. He came from a privileged background. And through his privilege, he decided to go in for a career in politics. And in about 1784, he entered the House of Commons as an MP. The next year, he was converted to Christianity, dramatically. And he became a really signed up, committed evangelical Christian. He was absolutely sincere in his faith from day one. And he was well-educated, he was privileged, he was very able. And he asked himself a very fundamental question right at the beginning of his Christian faith. He just started in Parliament. What's the best thing I can do with my life? And certain voices in his ear said, go into the church. People said to him, you'd make a great Anglican minister because you, you're a very good speaker. He was already a really good orator. You're very, very convincing. You're very able. You'd be a fantastic minister in the church. You'd be a fantastic parish priest and you'd rise up in the Church of England because you've got good connections. And so he thought and he wondered, is God calling me into the church to use that expression? And he thought, I'll talk about this. Who can I talk to about this? And he suddenly realized the right person to talk to about his uh, decision. And that man's name, another famous guy who you probably know, the hymn writer, John Newton. You know the hymn Amazing Grace? And most of you know the story of John Newton, who by then was an Anglican minister in London, very well-respected Anglican minister, but John Newton's life started out in a different way. He was, a, he was a sailor, he ended up as a sea captain, and he ended up as the captain of slave-trading ships in the transatlantic slave trade, which he'd given up and renounced many, many, many years ago, and he'd repented of all that, and he'd come into church leadership. So William Wilberforce sits with John Newton. Shall I go into the church? And John Newton says, no. I think God's calling you to public life and to politics. You just started there. 
Stay where you are. And they began to talk about some of the big causes, some of the big injustices of the day, not least of which was that very same slave trade which was still in existence. And in that moment, hidden from public view, something incredibly important happened that we could say kind of changed the course of public life in our nation to some extent. One man with great opportunities in life chose politics, public life against church leadership. And very quickly, he made a second decision that he would adopt the cause of abolitionism, getting rid of the slave trade, as his primary reforming crusade as an independent MP, largely in his life, well-connected to the governments, generally speaking, well-respected, He decided in the 1780s, I'm going to stand up against this injustice. He formed a coalition of very able people to help him, publicists, novelists, pamphleteers, politicians, peers, bishops. And he led this campaign and he was bitterly attacked. And year after year, as he brought his bill into Parliament, it was defeated, 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 and he came back every year. Until in 1807, the slave trade was abolished in the British Empire, and then he retired in the 1820s, and in the 1830s, the institution of slavery itself was removed from all British territories. The story is fairly well known. But what I want to highlight to you, and I want to speak prophetically to some of you tonight, I want to highlight to you the conversation that William Wilberforce had with John Newton. How do I deploy my faith? And the incredibly wise advice that he received from John Newton, and by the way, John Wesley, who was just in his last years, also said something similar to William Wilberforce. He could so easily have said, come to the church, we need more vicars, we need more leaders, we need more elders. You ever heard anyone say that? You know, churches need leaders. And churches often speak about the leaders they need, and it's a very legitimate thing. But tonight I'm speaking about something else. Our nation needs Christians in leadership positions and in positions of influence at a time when we think that's harder and harder. I'm saying we need it more and more and we're not going to give up. That was slavery then. But today, in the world, through the institution which we call modern slavery, 
the, the forcible sex trade, the forced employment of vulnerable men and children and women. Around the world, we have more people enslaved in the world today than were enslaved through the transatlantic slave trade that uh, Wilberforce fought so hard against. Do these things matter? They sure do. But if I take a modern example like the modern slavery situation, I'm seeing something similar happen that happened in Wilberforce Day. Christians are sitting up and saying, right, I'm going to play a part in this. My church is going to get involved in, in dealing with this issue. Christians have got involved in influencing public policy in a recent act of parliament not so many years ago was heavily influenced by Christians um, which, uh, which, which created greater accountability in this area and greater responsibility for police forces, greater transparency, greater opportunity to influence public policy. Now what I'm saying in the opening part of my talk is What has God given you in your hand? Your gifts. Your academic skills, if you're in academia. Your professional skills. The path of study that some of you are on. The connections with people that some of you have. The passions that are in your hearts. Can I, want to, I want to put those things on, on a big, big canvas today and say the kingdom of God that I believe in brings personal salvation and restoration, forgiveness of sins, the overcoming of the dark shadows of the enemy, but it breaks out into the society around and in the, in the 20th century, the church lost its vision of its capacity to do that. But now in this particular generation, and I'm speaking significantly to a younger generation tonight, with all due respect to those of an older age like me who are here, I'm saying to you, lift up your eyes to a kingdom and a king who wants big changes in our in our nation, which is going to come through strong churches like this one and many hundreds of others, which we urgently need on the ground, is going to come through mighty sovereign moves of the Holy Spirit in revival. I believe in all those things. It's going to come through determined evangelism on the ground in many different forms. I believe in that fundamentally. But I think it's also going to come by the church getting on the front foot. And tonight is about you being on the front foot. Just a few days ago, someone said, I want to come and see you and talk to you and have a meal with you. And I said to this lady, just tell me what the story is. And she said, well, I'm involved in, in social work and real concern for families and children and 
areas of professional opportunity and I've been just given an opportunity to have more influence and perhaps do some research and perhaps start influencing national policy. Do you think I should go down that road? Can you imagine what I would have said? I wouldn't have said, uh, no, I would focus on being a midweek group leader or joining the worship band. By the way, I really believe in those things. And usually it's both and. But I said, uh, just go for it. So the church is waking up to the complexities of our society. And I've only highlighted one, a very dramatic example, modern slavery, which we could talk all night about. But you and I know there's a whole series of issues that are very pressing. Family breakdown, the problems with benefits and the loss of real income for benefits recipients through the reforms of the benefit system, care of the elderly, how on earth are we going to manage in the decades to come? Our housing needs are critical in some parts of the country. We've got huge challenges with incoming refugees in some parts of the country. And the list goes on and on. But church is waking up. Church is, what I feel is the church is beginning to strengthen its muscles. Think, right, we can do something about this. And some of those things we do, we start from just within the church. As Dan has said, we're doing this, we're doing that as projects. I'm 100% committed to that. That's a number one strategy. But I'm also addressing you tonight beyond projects. I'm talking to you about your life, your skills, your gifts, your calling and saying, what is it that God's put in your hand? And how much are you going to use it for the wider good of our community? And as I'm speaking, some people will begin to think, oh yes, yeah, maybe this, maybe that. And if you're beginning to have those thoughts, don't let them fly away, just hold on to them. The Holy Spirit's beginning to speak. Slide number four. This morning, I painted three pictures. I'll give them to you just in a nutshell, really briefly, much more briefly than this morning. I basically said there's three things we need to think about at the same time in our nation. First of all, we need to look at the nation, the whole nation, United Kingdom, and think, well, you know, what's actually happening in our society? We see quite a lot of good things happening, but we see some very, very concerning trends in some of the areas that I've mentioned. And one of the big picture issues that I really want you to think about tonight is that the whole nature of the capacity of our state to care for its citizens has been fundamentally undermined by the financial crash that took place a decade ago because we took on such enormous amounts of national debt at the time which we have to service and it's changed the finances of the nation fundamentally and it's kind of invisible to you and me at street level but I can tell you those figures are well in the minds of all the politicians money is tight 
Services of all sorts are contracting, they're under pressure. And what I want to say to you is that is going to go on and on for many years to come. The, the economics mean that's going to happen. So in our nation, this produces many vulnerabilities, many vulnerable groups, and no longer can we think the state will do it in absolute certainty, because the state might do it, the state might not do it. And the might not issues are growing. That list is getting longer. As people say, we can't provide these services anymore on the money we've got. This is a great challenge, but I say to you tonight, more importantly, it's a great opportunity. We're moving towards the front line. We're moving towards a time when people will be talking to us strategically and saying, we really need your help. These things are going to happen in our nation. That's the first picture that I painted this morning. We could talk a lot of detail on that, but I'm not going to spend time on it, just give you the headlines. The second heading is really just thinking, well, what do the scriptures tell us? Many, many things, of course. But turning to slide number five, we just looked this morning at a scripture, Galatians 2, verses 8 to 10, which we just look on very briefly now. A very interesting conversation between the apostolic leaders of the early church, notably Peter and Paul, representing two different areas of mission. And they were having a conversation and trying to work out how they were going to partner together. Uh, and in verse 8 through to 10, we just have a text I want to comment on briefly. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, that means the Jews, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles, that's as Paul traveled the Roman Empire, James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, that's the apostles in Jerusalem, gave me and Barnabas, who were traveling around, the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. So when the most senior leaders of the early church sat down and talked, they agreed that apart from preaching the gospel and planting churches, there was another priority that was universal. Wherever the church was, we should remember the poor. Keep in mind and focus on the needs of people who are disadvantaged, who we're connected to in our communities. That was like a universal reality in the early church. It wasn't just this church rather than that church. It was for all churches. And it's for all churches today. That includes kings, that includes my church, Wherever we are, it's a priority.
Now, John Newton, when he was having a cup of tea with William Wilberforce, and they were talking about Wilberforce's career to be had, he had this in mind. And he said, you go into public life because you're going to make more of a difference there. So I want to ask you this question. How can you make a difference as an individual, maybe as a family unit, as well as the corporate questions for your church? I'm addressing you primarily now as individuals, and I'm saying, what's God put in your hand? What gifts have you got? And how can those gifts be deployed? Let me tell you a a story of a friend of mine called Matt who lives in another part of the country. He was a teacher. He was a very good teacher. And one day he went to a social action conference like the ones that I run. It was about 10 years ago. And he suddenly had a prophetic idea that one of the things the church needs to do is to create employment for the people who can't get jobs. So to cut a long story short, he gave up his teaching job and he started a business. It was a gardening business and he employed people come out of prison, people from a deprived background who couldn't get jobs elsewhere. And he built up this business, created a good reputation, and now he's multiplying businesses where he's giving employment to people who couldn't otherwise get jobs. By the way, that's one of the most creative things that we can do. And there might be one or two people in this room who suddenly realize, as I'm talking now, I could do that. Well, if you're hearing that from the Holy Spirit, this could be a key moment in your life. He was a good teacher, but he had another gift, the gift of an entrepreneur, a business gift. And one of the things the Holy Spirit is unlocking right now in the church is the entrepreneurial gift, the gift of creating ideas and realities and businesses and ways of doing things that no one's been able to do before or need to be redone in a different context. So I met with him and his colleague the other day and he wants to create about six, eight or even ten businesses and just employ more and more people He's doing a house cleaning business at the moment. And there's loads of other ideas coming. Now, this kind of creativity is where the church is heading. Social business, using academic skills, getting into public life, getting influential positions in the caring professions, running projects in churches like, like Dan's just identified, and some of you are called to do that. Planting churches in deprived areas. Lots of things are happening. And you're on that journey. And tonight, I'm just bringing a little encouragement to you on that journey. And I'm asking you the question, I'll repeat it again just so you don't forget it. What's God put in your hand? What's he given you? And how can you use that for a wider vision of changing people's lives? Maybe you hadn't connected 
the gifts you have with the mission of the church. Maybe you hadn't seen a connection which you'll see tonight. Some of you would just see a connection. I need to go and talk to the elders about that. I could do this. Let's go to the next slide. So I've got three stories to tell you. There's the nation. There's the biblical priority. And then thirdly and finally, there's the voice of the prophets. What's the prophetic voice saying? Your church believes in prophecy and I believe very strongly in the gift of prophecy today. Prophetic voices are saying in our nation and saying to me and my team, prepare the church for times of challenge and difficulty when there will be further economic and social instability and vulnerability and the the weakest people will be suffering most or most needy. Get ready strategically. So that's what we're doing. For example, services for recovering addicts, people suffering with addiction issues, public services provided. What's happening to those services in our country? They're fading away. They're being cut. What are the churches doing? A few churches are doing quite a lot, but there's a huge problem out there. So my team is currently researching. I've got a researcher working for me through this year to find out everything we can about what churches are doing in addiction recovery across the country. And then we're going to try and work out how can we help increase that capacity. That's one of my big questions that's going through my head right now. Prepare for a challenging future. So I'm not here to suggest that our lives are going to be comfortable and easy in the years to come. Sorry about that, Dan. But my goodness, they're going to be exciting. Because God is moving. And he's bringing together some vital strands. He's bringing a harmony of very important things he's bringing to the church. A restoration of our understanding of the dynamic nature of the church and how it functions, how leadership functions. He's giving prominence again to the absolute central importance of the Bible and the authority of Scripture and preaching the Scripture. He's giving prominence again to the amazing dynamic presence of the Holy Spirit who can be with us in every meeting and in every part of our lives. He's giving us evangelistic tools which we can use like Alpha and many others that are winning people for Christ. He's giving us loads and loads of resources and in the midst of that, he's giving us a bigger vision for his kingdom and saying, okay, you can reach further than you thought. You're not retreating, you're not dying, you're growing. Now, some of the church think they're retreating and dying and to be honest, they are. But where God is moving, the church is growing and you're part of that growing movement. We have to have the spirit and attitude of that. We have to stand up and think, okay, Lord, that gives us responsibility. So I'm saying to you, lift your vision up this evening and ask yourself the question, and this is where I'm going to end my talk, and we're going to have a little conversation in a minute as we finish. What's God given to you?
What's your contribution? The more you think about it, you'll probably find there's more there than you realize. I'm sorry, I just have a question about people who might feel like they're called to a corporate career, but they feel guilty that they're not going to like be um, working at like getting their hands dirty because maybe the best that they can do in their corporate career is give money to help a homeless charity, but they're not going to, their career doesn't allow them to get their hands dirty. Yeah. That's a very good question. I love that question. Um, some people are called to work in professions and business and corporate careers that don't have an immediate and obvious connection with what we're talking about, but provide them with opportunities to become sponsors, donors, uh, to use the resources they have, like their home, for example, uh, finance to get behind the work that God is doing. So one of the key dynamics that we're seeing operating now is that the funding of things that God wants to do is not coming through the traditional funding stream, which is people give money to the church and the church does the project, which is great for the church-based activities. But some other things need uh, more strategic funding. And um, uh, I, I know a number of people who feel called primarily as big donors, big sponsors, I met with one recently who, um, earns a, who has a business with a lot of money in it and he regularly makes donations to key strategic works. So one of the great gifts that God is unleashing is the gift of giving. And not everybody's called to the front line of compassion ministry or public engagement. Not, not everyone can do that. It's not our gift. It's not our opportunity. That isn't really the point, and you make a, you make a very good point because you're forcing me to clarify things. I appreciate that. And uh, there are some people for whom, you know, just the resources they have through their, their job gives them opportunity to support others, and that is absolutely fantastic and should be encouraged. Is that, a, is that a reasonable answer to your question? Yeah, it's a good question. I really appreciate it. Okay, another one. The lady over there. Microphone, please. Yeah. Um, can I ask about periods of waiting? Um, what's your personal experience or, or, or stories that you have of people who maybe had a vision but quite a long period of waiting? Yeah. I think with a lot of students here, often the feeling of maybe when I graduate I will do this or, or in a few years' time, how to deal with that process. Okay, well, let's just have a quick think about Joseph in the Old Testament. So here's a great example. Joseph had dreams uh, as a youngster which indicated a certain prominence that he would have and a certain role that he would have and everything went wrong, everything went in the opposite direction, he ended up in the wrong country, in the wrong place, in prison until suddenly God made it happen. He had to wait. And the amazing thing about that story is that what matters, if you have a vision, you alone do not have the capacity to make it happen. It requires the supernatural intervention of God. And um, it requires of us to hold on to that vision and live 
a very godly life while you're waiting for something to happen that hasn't happened yet, just like Joseph did. And because he lived a very godly life and he didn't fall into the temptations of the world or giving up or depression or futility or compromise, when the moment came, he was ready. The most important thing about having a future vision for something is to be ready at all times to take the next step. Only God gives the timing. And in my own life, my experience is that many things I felt called to wait many years and then suddenly they start to happen. And you just have to hold on to those things. And one way of holding on to them is to write them down very clearly. What God has said, put it in writing. Preserve it, pray over it, talk to your spiritual advisors or leaders about it just to check it out and, and hold on. God is able to bring things to pass. Thank you, it's another great question. Someone else? Jenna. This lady here. Ah, very fit leaders you've got in this church. That's what I like to see. So I guess the, the go-to when churches are looking to bless the poor or um, disadvantaged populations, there tends to be a kind of project that goes out, whereas the dream would be or the ideal would be for the, the poor and disadvantaged to be welcomed into the fabric of the church. What do you think are some of the the biggest barriers that churches have to grapple with so that that becomes more of a... Yeah. That's really quite a big question. Oh, yes, yeah, It's a great question. <laughs> uh, we've written quite a lot about it in the book. So just a small commercial suggestion for you. <laughs> By the way, I don't get any royalties from the book. <laughs> um, but I love to get the message out. Um, I think there's, there's so many different issues, but I, one of the one that we've actually highlighted in the book, which I'd just like to comment on as a, as a partial answer to your question, is that I think, and I was talking to the West Lothian congregation about this this afternoon, um, we have to face the fact that many of our churches have a distinct class feel to them, like a middle class type of feeling. And if you say that, by the way, you shouldn't say that with a sense of guilt or anything, this is just a fact. You are who you are. And as you reach out to people of different class backgrounds, let alone different racial backgrounds, but let's just deal with one area first, um, issues begin to become apparent as soon as those people try and enter the community. And if they're finding difficulties entering to the community, then the leaders have to begin to think, how can we moderate that? How can we make it easier? And... My basic rule of thumb, uh, given that we have, we've only got two minutes left before this is ending, um, but I'll just give you a rule of thumb rather than a slick answer. I thought about this a lot, and I wrote in the book uh, a chapter about culture. So if you get to that, then you'll find my methodology. I think the, the first thing to bear in mind is any church consists of more than one culture, subculture. So in almost any church, there are people who have different cultural values according to, for example, age. Um, even if you've got a fairly you know, uh, coherent demographic, you've still got a very big age difference. Now, I've got a big age difference in our church. We've got a lot of babies, but our oldest member's 95, and she turns up most Sundays, and she complains that she can't hear me preach despite the PA, you know, so we do have some issues. Um, so if there are many cultures, 
subcultures, even if they're very subtle. A good way to start is to make sure all the subcultures that are already in the church are reasonably represented in the main culture. So for example, if you have, and here's just a, an example that affects everybody, if you have a very big difference of age, you always, you always have a very big difference of preference for musical taste and songs. So, you know, it's a common place to try and work out what is the range of songs and how, who is that representing, as well as what theology is it representing. So if you extend that principle, for example, if you have a group in the church who come from a different ethnic group, but they've come in a, in a substantial group, um, then you need to accommodate them and find a way for them to really buy into the culture. And the same thing applies is if you have people from, shall we say, a more... A kind of working class background who are not used to uh, some of the methodologies of middle class they're not so comfortable with the socializing for example working in groups being in groups things like that so i think my answer is if we begin to if we think every church has a variety of subcultures just as a starting point then every new group that we're trying to attach to the church we have to think what are the challenges for them and how do we need to modify the culture and by that way, we can move forward. Okay? It's a short answer to a challenging question. Now, I think we've reached the time, haven't we? So I'm going to hand it back to you. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Martin, you really stirred us. Thank you so much for speaking to us. If you could, yeah. I'm just going to ask you, should we just stand up? It'd be great for Martin just to pray for us as yeah. a group, as a community. A community. Yeah, sure. That's okay? Yeah, sure. We'll close things after that. Thanks, Martin. Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you that you're here with us. We thank you for our lives. We thank you for all the things you put in our hands and given to us. And Lord, we want to give our lives back to you and say, Lord, how do you want to use our lives? We pray for a very dynamic engagement with the Holy Spirit, even this week, that we may know more clearly what you've called us to do and how we can contribute to this great and wonderful vision of your kingdom coming in power to our nation. So, Lord, I pray for lots of prophetic activity here at King's, lots of new journeys, lots of steps of faith, lots of consecration of lives, and lots of fruitfulness in the church as a result, Father, right across the city and way beyond. In Jesus' name. Amen.